Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO and founder of Law in Sport. We've got a news roundtable for you today focusing on what is a very hot topic, which is the litigation that's being potentially brought by former rugby players for head injuries sustained over their playing career. Now, there's been a lot of media coverage around this, and typically when people are talking around uh, concussion and particularly head injuries, they refer to the NFL case and then what happened in the NCAA. And I thought it'd be great to bring in three leading experts to actually focus on how a case may be brought in law and what the limitations and restrictions are, but also how this can be distinguished from the cases in American football. So I'm delighted to welcome three Law and Sport editorial board members and three leading sports lawyers, Professor Jack Anderson from the University of Melbourne, Professor Mark James from Manchester Metropolitan University, and Tim O'Connor from the Bar of Ireland. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, today to have a chat about this. We've exchanged a few emails um, when we saw the announcement last week, I believe it was, that their case was being brought in England from uh, a bunch of uh, former international rugby players. Who would like to kick us off? So I think it'd be great if we could start with, how does a potential case in rugby distinguish itself from, or why is it different from what happened in America with the American football cases? Who would like to sort of kick us off? I'm happy. To, I mean, there's a difference in the backbone as much as anything else. Um, rugby is not only part of the Zurich consensus on concussion injury management. It was one of the bases for it. Part of the backstory is that the first pitch side concussion management was done in New Zealand starting around 2003. And it has a history with litigation because New Zealand has no fault personal injury compensation. So what they could do was they could track the number of days people were out after an injury because they were making essentially no-fault claims for, I'm out of work for these many days. And what it showed was that pitch-side concussion management reduced the incidence and the severity of concussion numbers on the resulting from rugby compared to other sports quite dramatically. So they knew pretty much straight away by looking at that data, hang on, this works. So what happened was the NZRU were enormously generous with their expertise. So that's the New Zealand Rugby Union. So just, just <laughs> You forget that you, not everyone talks in the same acronyms as you. Um, but the New Zealand exported to Australia where it became Smart Rugby. They exported it in 2007 to uh, South Africa where it became Box Smart. And this was the basic template that everyone else has used. So 2007, Zurich Consensus, rugby was right there with the, the then Chief Medical Officer of World Rugby, uh, Professor McMalloy, um, as part of introducing what the SCAT regime we now work on generally. It was SCAT, I think SCAT 2 at the time. But and, so, so, and so for people, that, again, who are not necessarily familiar with this, the protocols in rugby about how you assess uh, a head injury um, or a player who sustained an impact to the head on the field of play, they've got a protocol called the SCAT 3 protocol in which um, they will take the player off and do assessment that typically takes around 20 minutes uh, and have a doctor to, to, to assess them. And that, 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 that consensus was drawn up 
by scientists from across the world in terms of what they felt was necessary to identify in real time what the potential injuries or someone who could be at risk of serious injury, head injury, which is, I believe, quite a difficult thing to do. Hence, why there's been all this um, science in terms of eye, eye scanning and uh, blood tests and the sensors behind the ears. and It's been a rolling one. I mean, we're now on SCAT 5. But they they stress that you know you've got the head impact assessment test. So you have um, it's now got to the stage where there are neutral doctors on screen checking to make sure to pick up on any things that could be there. You've got a proper um, concussion assessment test for ten minutes off pitch while they're being assessed with substitutes being allowed so that you know people can commit them off. It's developed and there's been continual research, continual sophistication. Um, the at the amateur level is still if there's a suspected concussion you're off if in doubt get them off is the rule there's no, no none of this at amateur level it's suspected any of the you know list of things that would indicate this you're off straight away but it, there's been a lot of research there's been changes about trying to lower tackle height make tackles safer change player behavior by um, more stringent punishments for contact with the head so it's been there's a big difference with the NFL coming back to where you asked because there is this history, this awareness, and these constant rolling efforts to not just deal with it but get better at it and do it in a more sophisticated way and try to address it. So it's it's quite different in that way. And so, so it's fair to say in in rugby, and I know uh, obviously Ross Tucker does a lot on this um, for World Rugby and has given some great presentations that the Bar of Ireland put on but a sports law conference on this, which is to look at, I know that rugby league do a similar thing. They look at in, in the course of a season, they look at behaviours in terms of things like higher tackles, approaches to tackles, other techniques that may be causing injuries to players. And then they look to adapt and change the rule um, in terms of to make it safer, to reduce the injuries. Now, uh, coming on to coming back to, though, to the NFL case, um, Jack or Mark, I'm not sure if you wanted to just outline sort of what the the basic premise of of, of those cases. Yeah, so I'll just quickly do, and, and uh, feed to Tamar. Um, so really, it's a basic negligence case taken by ex NFL players uh, that there was a breach of the duty of care by the NFL towards them with regard to their health and safety, um, and that breach of duty of care, which is the the kind of key point, is. Uh, the, probably the difference between the NFL and rugby is that uh, the argument that the NFL knew the risks, uh, concealed the risks, uh, and that feed, that fed in then to a lack of care in terms of a lack of a, in terms of the duty to warn, etc. So that, there's a key element there. Um, initially, there was some kind of individual cases. I think Frank Easterlings was the first one, really, and then we have the the class action, which was settled. But remember. <laughs> It was a settlement without admission of liability by the NFL. I mean, that's that's really important. There are particular reasons uh, why the players accepted that settlement, and there are particular reasons why the NFL accepted that. And also, we seem to have this view, and we can drill into the legal issues um, in a second, but... Remember, it's a $1 billion settlement. It's kind of gone over that now, depending on the assessment. Uh, currently, the uh, NFL has a turnover of 12 to $13 billion a year. So l- let's see it in the context of that. You know, there seems to be this view that there is some pot of compensation there for others. That's not the case. Um, so there's interesting legal issues. If you drill down into the settlement, interesting compensation issues. 
and also the, the the helmet manufacturer was it Riddell was it is it Riddell I think it was or the helmet manufacturer anyway were, was 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 uh, also involved in that claim. Yeah, there's a kind of a, a separate strain in that as well with regard to equipment, which again, of course, is different to, to, to rugby uh, as well. But it's it's really the the issues as to why the players settled. Remember, and this is the same with this case here, the players are looking for medical care and costs, right? That, that's primarily an issue. And they are faced with the difficulties of causation. The NFL are sitting on the data. They know that if the court, case goes to open court, that data will have to come out. And even though the legal technicalities may favour them overall, uh, in an open litigation sense, well, who knows? Uh, you know wh- where it goes in in terms of public opinion, and therefore a settlement was arranged, and that's where it continues on, and that's where I stem it. And then that's a that's a great point, and maybe I'm not sure, Mark, if you want to pick this up. There, the difference between and we'll get into the uh, again the, the the legal issue uh, with with how the players may approach this litigation. But one of the key things is that you know in litigation, there's various strategic reasons why um, parties will not want to go to court, and why it will play out. There's other factors, insurance policies, and other things that will come into play that will dictate how um, and any sort of litigation follows a certain path, right? And 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 certain events that will take place. So it's not just inevitable, as what's been reported in the press, that someone brings a claim, it goes to court, and then you know it go it is awarded to one side or the other side. It's it's much more complex than that, and many other factors that are going going on. Um, the other thing to point out, probably before we bring Mark in, is that one of the other issues in america is one it's a very litigious culture anyway but there was also uh, been lots of cases against lawyers who have acted for players who have essentially been taking out more money than the players are getting awarded since it for their legal fees and i think there's ongoing cases across america for this as well where you know the legal fees have ramped up and the, and and some of the lawyers are getting paid more than the actual uh, uh players who, who or more than the compensation that's being awarded to the players um mark over to you. I think the uh, the context that Tim and Jack have brought forward about the uh, the litigation is what's really important here. That the NFL, as Jack was saying, there is evidence that they were actually concealing the evidence, and so the players were unaware perhaps of the extent of the risk that they were taking by engaging in the sport in the way that they did. At the other extreme, we've got rugby has engaged and has been involved with the development of the SCAP protocols. And then you've got football in the middle, which after the Jeff Astle coronial hearing said that heading the football led to dementia and and constituted an industrial disease, football has done nothing really in between. So we've got rugby with almost this very full engagement with the issue and trying to develop ways of dealing with concussion on the field and managing it and making sure that the players are safe. Uh, there may It may not be a perfect situation, but again, we'll come on to the legal issues around that later, but at least they have engaged with the issues. Football is aware of them and is not engaging. The NFL were actively trying to uh, cloud the issue to make sure that the, the litigation was very difficult. And I'm sure if it if it was litigated in America, they would come up with all sorts of other issues around players' lifestyles and those kind of things. And it would be it would become ugly. Um, 
what what we need to avoid with the rugby litigation is it going down that route and as as jack has already highlighted nobody really wants to see uh these cases come before the court nobody wants to see ill people having to take litigation against the sport that they've been involved with and the sport that they love it's just such a bad look so some sort of settlement is what's likely to try and make sure that the players are looked after on the one hand and also to avoid any um any bad publicity around around effectively ignoring your star players and the problems that they've come across so so there's a great point there that we should probably pick up closer to to the end which is you know the ramifications for other sports and what this may mean um which i think is 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 really interesting um should we have a have a look then analysis and uh, give analysis for those that aren't familiar with the process of uh, bringing a claim uh, who would like to run through uh, the arguments that the players will be uh, bringing forward and maybe also uh, I'm not sure if you want to tackle that first or at the same time outline who they're going to bring a claim against <laughs> because that's quite important I, I actually I'd, I'd nearly go with who it's against first because who you're claiming against is going to shape what the claim is because Everybody has a different duty of care. So because you're duty, if you're saying, well, you have a duty of care to me, first you've got to show that there is a duty of care. You've got to show that they breathe. And that is obviously going to be a different duty of care for different bodies. You've got to show that they breach the duty of care, that that breach caused damage, and that is then reasonable to impose liability because of that. Now, in this case, I think, you know, the... The damage is a given. They have the diagnosis, they're awful. You know, so the fact that there is damage is there. That can be part. The question of the duty of care, you know, the knowing that if if I have I have a duty to make sure that I do not actually be causing harm is going to vary from body to body. As we we haven't seen the claim yet, so to some extent for flying blind and on press releases, what we have seen in the press releases is that they are bringing it in England and Wales as jurisdiction. Again, and what they're saying is they're bringing it against the Welsh Rugby Union, the WRU, and the Rugby Union in England, the the Rugby Football Union, the RFU. So that would mean that it's common law, basic duty of uh, standard negligence, tort and negligence in that way. what I haven't seen, and it's one that I've been prodding away at in some ways, is a question of who else. Because the thing about rugby is there's basically a European player market now. And what has been very much an established thing is that the big money for player salaries in the European player market is in France. They pay, they pay higher wages. There is also, unfortunately, a flip side of that, which is that they will expect to get their money's worth. And people like Jamie Cudmore, who's bringing his case against his, the Canadian, who's bringing his case against um, his former team, Clermont Auvergne, in France, where he said that he was absolutely unquestionably concussed. You know, that there were vomiting in the dressing room and told, go back out, we need a second or something. They're clear things. There is that culture that you keep going, that you're, you know, we pay you, go on. That's much are there for. So some of these players will have gone through France. And it's a question of then showing, well, is the French club part of this action under what law? 
the clubs that they would have been playing for in England or in Wales are also an issue because for chronic pain like this, it's not these aren't acute injuries. It's not so much one really dramatic breach of uh, duty where someone got really badly injured in one acute incident. There has been litigation about that in the past in rugby, but um, we can come back to that. But these are saying that these are regular smaller ones, that smaller insults that just added up to this. So, so we can look at this and say, right, there's potential claims against clubs. There's potential claims against the national um, uh, governing body and the league. And there's potential claims against world rugby, right, as, as, the, as, as the regulatory body. Is that correct? Yeah, it, you're stacking up. So it's like the club, most of the impacts would have happened in training and in club games. Then above that, you have the international body, which is, yes, we're playing test rugby, presumably but also a duty to you know, enforce the regulations they make for their safety and to see if they will enforce down that. Um, although you, in a lot of cases, you'd have a league body in between the national governing body and the club. So the, the league structure in England and in France is that there's a league body in between. Above that, again, you've got World Rugby effectively as global legislator, but they make the policy and then send it out to the national unions to enforce in their domestic in their national sphere of control so it's a question of how much control do world rugby have what's their duty of care to see that it's enforced right down at club level and are they so the question of that responsibility to link those up that chain is one of the issues that will be arising and what um, one, of, one of the things that's quite interesting as well is the distinction between competitive uh regulation of competitive matches and training which is, uh, I know that some of the the um, statements from the players they've said that you know a lot of the damage um, uh, that they sustained was during training. Jack, yeah. So, so if if you look at it in a kind of a simplistic way, which would be typical of me, um, you would see that the duty of care by say world rugby is to ensure that the game is played safely that's essentially the duty of care and that you update your regulations uh, accordingly so from what we can gather from the the press releases etc what they're saying is as the game professionalized and there's some rule changes they're looking at in particular that they focus that world rugby or the rugby authorities generally just say didn't stay up to date with the physicality of the game that the safety rules did not reflect so that that's kind of what they're saying and if we encapsulate that then say in the concussion protocols now it's it's not as simple as that but the concussion protocols they're essentially arguing then two things well first of all are the concussion protocols state of the art uh, are they reflective of the reasonable standards of the day and second, as Tim has noted, are they being implemented? Are they being enforced down along the chain by the various parties? And that 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 generally in concussion, and we've seen it in the NFL, brings up very interesting questions about uh, doctors' duties, about coaches' duties, about all the various different strands. So that's where it becomes really, really interesting to see the breach of duty of care in action. So keep keep an eye on those two issues. So, so Jack, one of the, the the points that came up in our insurance panel that we had at our football law conference from 2019, in May 2019, I asked the question, uh, I've been on Mark's point, around uh, a football governing body, national governing body in FIFA, potentially be liable for not introducing the SCAT 5 protocols 
in this in the same way for example in rugby because if that was agreed that the prevailing science at the time was that you need 20 minutes to do an assessment then just having a, a pitch side analysis by your own club official um or by your doctor you know quick quick yeah are or the physio are you okay off you go again uh seemed to be problematic to me but the the the, the point that that um one of the speakers raised was that even though there is this scat 5 protocol if you look at the wider body of research that's out there it can be very easy for parties to find scientists who disagree and so to get that general consensus is um or get agreement on that consensus in litigation can be more challenging than it may first appear yeah so so one one key point with tort law is that it's kind of it's uh, I always say it's 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 not hindsight it's foresight so it's it's what was reasonable at the time which is interesting question but say like we take one area say return to play protocols so it becomes interesting to look at it in two ways in the two ways I said so with the return to play protocols are they fit for purpose in the first place so if I break my leg I can have a fair idea of when I could and how return but rehabilitation for a brain injury. How, how do we do should we do it in time or should we do it in some other ways and the rugby authorities have grappled with that and uh, as they go along so that's a, the second thing then is well actually is it being enforced and enforced is when they're taken off uh, at training during the week etc that's that's the issue so there's a lot of issues there the one issue that i would flag up just before i pass to, to mark is there's a lot of criticism of doctors here, you know, and there's a lot of people on Twitter looking at games saying the doctor ought to have done this or the doctor. I think we need to be very careful about that as well. You know, there's protocols there. The doctors treat the patient more than the protocol, if you know what I mean. And that, that's just one little caveat that we might return to. Yeah. Um, the, the, the layers that we need to work through on this, uh, Jack and Tim have pointed out, and it's, it, the, the duties will vary and what we're talking about here as we've seen is is from world rugby and probably the the national governing bodies it's the design of the protocols and the way that they're implemented then you're moving down to when you've got them at the national level what are the club doing with them and what's going on in the game are they being uh implemented correctly so we've got an issue of the design of the protocols in the first place we've then got an issue of the application of the protocols we've then got as we've been saying, the, the problem then is at the club level and a lot of these incidents taking place in training where you haven't got that formal uh, protocol being used at all. So you can bring in the clubs as potential defendants here as well. The issue with the doctors is important as well because if they are uh, following the protocols, that's okay. But there's also issues that if they're not and um, the, uh, the the Cudmore instant is really important that he was effectively in a, in a couple of games told to stand down and then the doctor came back in and said actually you're all right you can go back on now and in that situation you've got the doctor as a potential defendant as well that then depends on their relationship with the club as to whether they are a standalone defendant or whether the club's vicariously liable for them and particularly with the uh, clarification of vicarious liability in english law at least earlier this year that makes it potentially that we do have a if if the doctors are genuinely independent in this then we've got a completely new area 
that the uh, or new defendant that the players may go for, and those doctors will generally have fairly substantial insurance backing them up, and that could be an issue as to as to who we choose to go after in all of this is who's actually got the best insurance. So I'd have thought that they'd have been looking at all of these groups that we've been discussing: World Rugby, the national bodies, the clubs, the doctors. And then also we'll need to find out who can actually afford to pay it out. The rugby union have said that their insurance could cover this. So it may well be that we're already starting to see moves towards some sort of settlement there. But it's really going to test the extent of the cover that each of these bodies actually have in this situation. I mean, just coming back on something something that Mark and Jack have said, the issue of the doctors, this isn't theoretical. In the Killian Willis case, it's now settled. Um, for Killian Willis, who was an Irish player playing with Sale, retired and uh, Sale in Manchester, retired, um, brought an action saying that you know, he had been affected due to lack of proper implementation of the concussion protocols at club level. And I mean, it wouldn't, it's supposed to be the same implementation of training and on pitch, which is so that you can see the relevance. Um, the club doctors were brought into the litigation and the club was left out. It's since settled, but I mean, it's not a theoretical one about the issue for the doctors and their insurance as well. So, I mean, but even, but even in terms of, say, in the training loads, the RFU has been tracking, there's a multi, the, the English rugby union, the RFU, they have a multi-year injury tracking project. It's about 16 years in now. It's been going since 2004, and they track various injuries for incidents and severity, and they can track the concussion incidents and severity. And... When the formal regulations came in in 2011, concussion incidents went up a lot, but has now roughly plateaued so that you know, more people are being detected. Severity has still gone up, which means that there are, people are taking more days out for the same number of injuries, which suggests there that there may be some you know, people are taking more time, which is what you know, the proper enforcement. So again, you're coming back to what's the data, what do we have, who can show what. And you know, the fact that there is all of this data there at match level, is good for the RFU. The club incidents data level, the, there you'd wonder, well, how much are you tracking what's happening there? And we don't know is the simple answer because obviously it's not going to be published, but it would be an interesting one to find out. Yeah, just very quickly on the doctors, there's a Harvard study done about the NFL doctors, uh, which is really interesting that uh, actually most of them are ha- hardly paid at all because it's a symbolic, a very important thing for their business. Uh, and there was a debate over whether they were being paid at all, whether they were in- independent contractors, what exactly was their legal status? And it became a very hot topic very, very quickly. And that's an interesting point as well. Not alone the independence of the doctor, um, looking at people, assessing people, but their independent contract status as well. So, so that was interesting. And you, you got. Um, there's a few things here. One is, um, I would like to come. There's, there's two things I want to discuss. One was the culture of the sport at the time. And, and Jack, I love your point, which is, you know, it's, it's not about hindsight; it's about foresight. Because you know, Matt Dawson came out and said, look, I, from his perspective, and he said it's like, you know, just from his perspective. But you know, for he understood the risks getting involved. He knew it was a contact sport. I know a bunch of former rugby players who have told me that even though they were told to, to um, say if they'd had a head injury or if they'd been concussed or thought they'd been concussed, they would point blank refuse. They would do things like they would. And again, this is only a sample. So it's not, he can't be said for everyone, but the culture of the sport was one 
in which it wasn't the done thing to say that you had an injury. So people would lie on the assessment protocols, so they'd dumb down their grading so that they, when they were a test, if they did have a head injury, they would score the same. So they get you basically get this test where you have to answer certain questions. Um, and so that, is, at what point as well does that cultural element uh, start to play in these these historical cases? Well, just very. So what I see about foresight and Heisenstein isn't a get out clause for for the anyone or the authorities. You know, there was reasonable care at the time, and and reasonable standards were in place at the time. And, and the question is whether they were applied or complied with. And, and that's where the, the the cultural issue comes in. Well, the cultural issue has serious things. I mean, there is one you know significant cultural issue, which is. For anyone who's played contact sport and has been hurt during an important game, you know, you, you don't want to self-certify. You don't want to go off. I mean, that's, you know, it's got better now, much better now, and p- players are much better. But for a long time, you didn't. And there was various understandable, competitive reasons why they didn't. But you needed someone to go in and, and assess you and bring you out and say no which is why Tim's point about community sport, when in doubt, sit them out, is so important. So so there is that cultural issue where it comes from players, the compliance issue, that, uh, you know, that all feeds into what was happening at the time. And that's important. The, the problem is driven young men in a collision sport are basically idiots. I mean, and we, I was trying for one to be chivalrous. Um, you know, it's like these guys will push themselves through hurting. Rugby hurts, and that's part of the fun in some weird way. Um, so you, there is a duty to make sure that you know, you're know you not breaking guys or the guys aren't breaking. There has, I think, been a big cultural change in that guy, players are now booking themselves off voluntarily. They're saying, I'm not right to play. So, I mean, you'd Sam Whitelock, the All Black, the New Zealand second, was saying, I'm not fully recovered. I'm not ready to play in this important test. And New Zealand went, fine, good, thanks for letting us know, you know, and they played, you know, put in a different guy because, you know, the point that a concussed player or a player who's not, whose brain is not working properly due to a brain injury, which is what concussion is, will cost teams games, has, I think, now sunk in. But there was a thing in the past that, you know, at that level, and particularly, say, a club level, you know, where just, oh, go through it, you know, the early 2000s, where you'd have teams used to revel in the fact and celebrate that, oh, we have fights at at training, we're that hard, and we're pushing ourselves this hard. There was that culture there. Yeah, I remember 10 years ago, when I was, or more than that now, when 2000, what was it, 2000, between 2004, 2007, I was studying sports science. There was a lot of, you know, the Leicester were a winning team, I think, at the time. And the part of the, the, um, this to say the myth of them that was built up was because they trained their 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 training was like a competitive match, and obviously now we look at that and we say right, what what you know was were they following the guidelines properly? Um, so when we're looking at this though, we've had issues. So say say for example, again, you know as you know Jack and, and me in particular, but Mark, I know you studied this and Tim, but boxing's you know what you know a sport that me and Jack love and obviously we saw the michael watson case but then recently we just seen um uh Deval, 
uh, Dubois, sorry, I always say about Dubois, um, where he had a where he broke broke an eye socket, and you know he got huge criticism from the boxing fraternity for at least forty eight hours because he took the knee because he got a sharp pain basically that went through his eye socket, and so you wonder how far we've come in certain certain sports like boxing um, on this education of. Um, you know, it's you know, you're better to f- live to fight another day, literally, than you are to carry on playing. Um, I know certainly in the NFL, I believe there was a, a college quarterback who was um, going to sign a multi-million pound contract and decided not to turn pro because he'd had a few concussions and said, "Yeah, I, I choose to have a healthier life than to to, to make a you know, few million pounds." In terms of when we're looking at though, when these actions are being brought, and obviously we had the Michael Watson case um, that that basically bankrupted the um, the governing body for boxing in England at the time or in the UK at the time um when we when we when this if the win is for everyone that there, that there is adequate medical care for former and current players there is a tension here between the the, the uh, potential case if it runs to a, in a certain way that it could literally stop the sport from being participated in i was thinking about it at the weekend that that you know again i love boxing sometimes hard to justify when you see people get you know stood up again after being knocked down to fight again and i like mixed martial arts and i was wondering you know whether or not if we fast track to the future in 10 years time is if we only have grappling sports as opposed to striking sports because of they won't be able to get the insurance cover (laughs) uh in order to to be able to um fulfill the requirements to have uh people participate in the sport can we, you know, can you give us me your assessment on that in terms of, you know, what implications would a p- potential very a successful litigation? So let's say if it didn't settle and it went to the courts, what impact that could have on the sport worldwide and other sports for that matter? Well, anything can be insured. It's a question of how much you're going to insure it for. You know, so that's you know, it's the cost going forward. Um. One of the big elements would be proactive change to trying to reduce risk insofar as you can in the, the inherent risks of a collision sport like rugby. Um, certainly a lot of the work that's being done on the, the research on tackles and you know, contacts with the head and trying to move out of head-to-head contact, particularly when you mentioned Ross Tucker, and the work that he's been doing on that through the video analysis. So um, what I think it would still be okay, it, it wouldn't, be, you know, the fact that you know, the instance has plateaued now and first there's more time being taken for recovery is a good indication that shows that, you know, that this is the management that you want. Um, I wouldn't, I, th- I think some of the apocalyptic um, it'll end the game takes are a bit off. This is not the first concussion litigation I already mentioned um, Killian Willis. There's live one in our. There's a live one with from a former pro in Ireland. Um, I mean, the Killian Willis one settled, and the game has gone on. Um, it's about managing it and making sure it's done properly. The uh, obviously every you know, as as long as there's a culture and a will to make it safer insofar as possible, that's going to be quite a big difference for that's going to be relevant for insurers because that reduces the risk and if you reduce the risk you reduce the, nominally anyway you should be reducing the, the premium to cover that risk so i think 
yeah, it, it, it's not an unreasonable question to ask, but I think some of the, oh, this is it, this is the end of, it, some of those takes are overwrought and they don't seem to be looking at the history and the, the actual details of what has been done. We, we get we get those reports that sport's going to finish every time a case goes against sport, and you know, the the ridiculous coverage of the uh, the Smolden and the Vals and Evans cases about against referees was that we would never have nobody would ever referee the game would be too expensive to insure and that would be the end of all contact sports and clearly that hasn't been the case. There will be ways through this and ways around it that we will have to work with. And when we were to- talking about the culture, I mean that's relevant to some of the defences that could be raised and maybe the, you know, maybe the case can, maybe the litigation can start to educate people more clearly about what is acceptable and what isn't. And if players think that they might lose a case because they've fiddled their baseline assessments, they're going to stop doing it if it means that they will be found to have either been voluntarily accepting the risk by doing that or their contributory negligent or the insurance doesn't apply because they're going to expect you to provide the um all of the information in good faith i mean insurance contracts are notorious for finding ways out of making payments not for ways of including you in payments and so the this the kind of litigation like this and again it goes back to what we were saying right at the start about unearthing um certain evidence particularly amongst the players and their and their playing and personal lives that they will not want to come to court and i think we have to take that culture seriously as it's not necessarily going to feed directly into the litigation but it's going to make the defense ask certain questions or ask for certain evidence that may not put the players in the best light when it comes to the case itself and taking that forward as you said looking into the future the impact there would be what are we then going to do to educate the players what are we going to do to make the players as safe as possible in and some of that will then be what will the insurers accept as appropriate or reasonable risks in any given sport insurers clearly still insure boxers you know that there are ways that you can deal with fighting sports and full contact sports that doesn't mean that whatever the outcome of this case that rugby will finish in a few months time as mark said there are defenses i mean it's something we haven't really touched on but things like Say, for instance, limitation periods, your three years in England and Wales to bring your claim. If they're from the press release, they're talking about start bringing the claim in, you know, actually launching the pleadings in 2021. So, I mean, if someone, say, retired in 2017 because of concussion related issues, which I mean, there's one player has been mentioned in relation to this who did retire in 2017 because he'd had one concussion too many. Your level of knowledge at that stage of, you know, well, am I you know, aware of this? Is this my date of knowledge to bring a case? Limitation periods are going to be a big issue in this, and I haven't seen them touched on any of the other releases. And so, I mean, that's quite a live one. But, but, but also, so, sorry, so the one thing I was going to say in, in this is that, that, that is interesting is that, say, Bill Sweeney, for example, came out and said, look, this is awful. We need to do. We need to do. So this is the case. The players agree. We need to do something about it. And again, if we look at the narrative that was coming out of the NFL, it was a different because of the the, the the legal culture in in America is vastly different, and how litigation plays out is very um, contentious. Here, it doesn't seem to be the case as much. But also, 
it should it should be pointed out that there is already in rugby ring fence money for player development. So they already ring fence X percentage for from player welfare issues on because of the uh, player associations as well. And so it does seem it would seem or would you see is it likely that that pot of money in which um, unions allocate to player development starts to increase and grow this say and then and the, the settlement will make sure as you were saying that these the former and current players can have the right medical cover that 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 would basically be the evolution of this uh potential litigation yeah i mean look and just to pick up on on tim's um point you know that what we're discussing are kind of there a lot of them are technical legal issues you know the moral duty if you like towards the player there's no there's no problem with that everyone knows that we're just talking about the the litigation tactic and that's it's it's really important uh, that we say that um the the issue with money and, and insurance there's a, there's things you can do for current players absolutely in terms of insurance in terms of you know, other sports have done it through collective bargaining agreements. Uh, the issue is with these past players who were there at the cost of professionalization. And there's a class of players who say, we have a problem here. Uh, and that problem is legally and with the standards that were set and all, all that kind of stuff. But the interesting thing with the boxing thing is Watson and the British Boxing Board of Control is good authority for the duty of care issue, you know. So the duty of care issue is 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 pretty, you know, in their favour. And then what Watson says is, well, reasonable care with regard to adequate medical ringside attention, and they said it was unreasonable. Therefore, like, and causation followed. Um, so, so that's what they said. But I, the point I want to make about Watson is, Chris Eubank was involved in that. I remember number of years later watching his son fight a guy called Nick Blackwell. I think it was Nick Blackwell and and, and who got a very serious injury. It was the medical attention that he got that night that saved his life. You know, this stuff works. This evidence-based medical research works. That And that's important in rugby. Because I was just doing a little bit on Formula One the other day, which is the one sport that I just don't get. But I was just looking at the death fatality rates in the 70s were astronomical. And Jackie Stewart and the players said, come on, come on, we've got to do something. And you look from 1994, Verstappen and Senna, you've only had one death since. And you looked at that spectacular crash in Bahrain, you know, with the Formula One, he walked away because the halo saved him. And he said himself, he said himself, I didn't want the halo. I didn't like it when it came in. You know, so sometimes you have to have a paternalistic approach to this, but you can do it. Health and safety can work and make the sport better. And I think that's what we're about, you know. And so so um, just coming back. Thanks, Jack. And I think it's a, a really great point that you make. And if you haven't seen the Senna documentary, you should absolutely watch it because that is you hear you literally got the video recordings of the discussion between the FIA at the time. And the, and the and the the drivers saying, "Hey, you're not looking after our safety here. We need to, um, you know, you need to really, you know, look after us." And they were fighting that battle, and it was really interesting. Obviously, that was in the the 70s or 80s. Um, but you see the culture shift. Um, Tim, sorry, I, I, I did cut you off. And I'm conscious. Did you just want to quickly run through those other the, the, the other defences? Because I, I would imagine there's some lawyers, or if not lawyers, but law students or others who are listening, go, hold on, I didn't get, I didn't get the right. I need to write down the rest of the defences. <laughs> well, um, I mean, on the duty of care of world rugby, there's authority on them. An Australian case called Agar and Hyde, 
And the case was about, was brought by people who had catastrophic injuries in the scrum. Um, just as a quick diversion, you know, there's been, you know, there was a lot of uh, evidence-based research about how to make scrums a mall safer starting from 1984. And the mall, because of that, when they introduced one law change, it went from the most dangerous place on the pitch for a catastrophic injury to the safest within 18 months. So, I mean, this was back in the 1990s. But anyway, 1989, uh, the case was about, you know, they, they had catastrophic spinal injuries and they said the World Rugby, the International Rugby Football Board, as well at the time, had a duty of care to make the laws to make the laws of the game safer for them. Now, there were two elements. There was one that it was an unincorporated body at the time. That rationale is now gone. There's also the question of, is it authority that a governing body does not have to make a game absolutely safe, it just has to apply the regulations made for it. Now, there's what I would describe as the Goldilocks discussion between Jack, Mark, and me on this. Jack is of the view it's good authority. Mark is of the view it's dead. I'm sort of in between the two, and therefore, by the rule of the Goldilocks, just right. But um, No, I, I, th- I think a Garen Hyde would, would be gone now. I don't think it would. I don't think it's good authority anymore, given the regulatory nature of world rugby. I, I, th- I, I would be a mark on that. On the unincorporated, on the unincorporated basis, absolutely, that's gone. But the general duty of care issue about making it safer. My view is that with Robinson in the UK Supreme Court and the way it's been adapted in Ireland as well recently, the increased level of control of an international governing body may lead to a higher duty of care to actively change laws of the game. Um, but Ager's still there. I mean, they will have to, it, it, you know, it may be gone in terms of our view on discussion on that, um, but it still exists. So you'd have to at least get over that and show why it should be. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of Australian high court cases would over, yeah, would probably side with your view, actually. So I, I think you're on the right track on that. I would, I agree with you totally on that. I, I think the duty of care issue, and actually I think World Rugby wouldn't make an issue of the duty of care issue, you know, in, in the sense that if you look at what they're trying to do through their evidence base, I actually think that's what they're doing. You know, I, I, I it's the breach issue I think would be, and this has gone way too tort lawyery, but it's great. Yeah. Joe, I, I always, always say this with our podcast and stuff. It's outrageous that we actually talk about the law, <laughs> but that's no, great. The chairman of world rugby, Bill Beaumont, Bill Beaumont's international career ended because of concussion. So that you know, there's an awareness of this all the way up. People are, and you know, his son is an international professional rugby person. There's an awareness of this. People get this at a fundamental level. So Tim, Tim, you didn't go through the defences, but but that's fine. People are going to have to tune into another episode um, or read one of your articles on law and sport because otherwise we're going to run out of time. But in terms of it's well, thank you all so much. It's been a brilliant discussion. Um, you know, the reason why I wanted to do this with you is because you are experts in this field. Um, you know, Jack and Mark in particular have written books on this, <laughs> so so um, you know they know what they're talking about. But the what does this mean for other sports? Because at this moment in time, there is you know we had the Tony Gray Thompson report on duty of care. We've got all the issues around uh, you know abuse in sport. Typically, um, what does this type of case, given that 
I think it focuses the mind because of the potential financial implications. What does this mean for other sports? Or what do you think it means for other sports? I'm conscious that Mark Mark, Mark has been squeezed between the two Irish guys, so I let I let I let Mark get a word in. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Um, we, well, we kind of touched on this earlier. Um, I think it, what it is doing is it's highlighting the issues and and making it very clear that they can't be ignored and that that neither pretending they're not happening isn't a good enough defence. You actually have to be more active, like World Rugby has been, in finding the evidence and trying to work out how your protocols should evolve. And I I think that's where football has made a very big mistake, particularly after the Astel case that I mentioned earlier. And they need to make sure that they are collecting the evidence. They need to make sure that they are taking it seriously. Um, and it's not just at the junior levels, though obviously that would be helpful. I think in, in the US, they've actually stopped he- <coughs> heading in training as a result of that. And, and that's maybe not thought through properly because you're not learning the technique to do it in the best way if you're completely outlawing it. But I, th- I think what it does do, and and if there was litigation, as as we were just talking about the, um, the, the Agar and Hyde case, what it will do is clarify those duties even more than we've seen previously. We've not had the sports cases go up to the Supreme Court. This might not either, but what it what it is doing, even from a discussion like we've had this morning, is it's clarifying those legal issues. It's making sure we're aware what is required of a governing body in terms of both design of its safety rules and their application right the way throughout the sport. And if it can make certain governing bodies sit up and take notice that actually they're doing either nothing or what they're doing is inadequate because they're not collecting the evidence in the right way, that could only be a good thing. One thing I do sometimes worry about in regard to this is that because... Yeah, and it was even hinted at in the, the press release where there, there, it was hinting that, oh, the, the bodies involved with the Zurich, cons- Zurich consensus all now have concussion injuries. Well, you know, maybe that's because they got ahead of the curve and were the ones taking it seriously. Um, it's not just because collision and combat sports are the ones who seem to be leading the charge in this practical necessity. Um, they're, you wonder in some sports, are they going, well, that's just the problem for them. And I mean, on Friday last, um, the UCI in Cycle came out with their concussion policy, um, which they're calling the Harrogate Consensus, which sounds incredibly dra- uh, glamorous. Um, the, but that was, you know, Pat, who's one of the guys in, again in Cape Town, but he, he was working with that. And they reference in that the World Rugby One has led to a culture change and trying to do this. And they talk in that about how we adapt this, you know, because the, the, the issues in the tour about Roman Bardet clearly being concussed, getting back on the bike, and people, people just generally went, no, this is enough, we can't be doing this. And they talk about how we adapt it to our sport, and it may not be perfect, but it's a start, and it's getting the data, and it's like how we adapt this. And I think if, any, if it does anything, if every sport starts taking this seriously, because... Head injuries can happen in any sport. I mean, it's a management thing for every sport. 
Well, there's a point. There's a point here also that it goes not beyond head injuries, but also medical treatment more broadly. Because I know that there's also associated litigation or potential litigation around the use of um, cortisol injections and stuff like that, which have basically you know just get the player out, you know, mentality, right? Get the person through this, and maybe as as I think as you've all said that this type of uh, case leads to better education, better awareness, and focuses and focuses the attention of the executives and the board members and the coaches and others into where they should be, um, you know, getting the right balance, let's say, between allowing someone to compete. And it is a difficult, in the moment, it can be a difficult, you know, um, thing to get right because all the war stories in sport are about these heroes who push, you know, beyond what any other normal human being would do in order to achieve their success. So you've got this deep culture in sport about overcoming adversity which is in conflict when you look after looking after someone's welfare and then jack the final word yeah. to you yeah and i suppose the blunt uh, reply to that is it it's all very good but if you, if you can't remember it two decades later you know where are you and that's the thing that that sparks this so but i would say you know with concussion it's all sports from hockey to horse racing here in australia they're all agog about a new batsman will Puskowski. he's a victorian He's just after getting another concussion. He's 22. It's his ninth concussion. You know, so uh, there's a, an, an emphasis now on cricket with that, which is, for various reasons, Australia extremely important. It puts the emphasis on elite players are important. There are tiny percentages of the people who play it. We have interesting data on how the effects on, on female about concussion, obviously with children as well. But just my last point is, you know, what? contact sport is actually, sport is a good thing. You know, it, it is a good thing. We're just trying to make it safer. Willie Stewart did a great piece of research for Glasgow University on football and the links with dementia and heading the ball. But one thing that he said was, overall, when it comes to things like heart disease, when it comes to things like cancer, these people, these footballers were much healthier than others. And and that's an important point. If we can make it safer on the one issue, we will see the benefits overall. I think that's important. Well, Jack, Jack, and I think that's such a great point. Because I, you know, you know, you know that we we talk about this for boxing. I'm not anti-boxing, but I just think you know, having an evidence-based approach where you can limit the exposure or limit the the, the damage that's done to one that is more acceptable, let's say, uh, and people can be truly informed about the risks that they take and make that assessment themselves. Because in some instances, if you can get certain people, like my life certainly improved from doing boxing, and I wouldn't change that. It was you know, it was a game changer for me. And I'm sure sport in in rugby, as you said, cricket and others has been the same for a whole bunch of social reasons, health reasons, everything else. But it's just understanding those risks and and taking, given what we know at this moment in time, taking the best approach uh, to look after people as best we can. Um, Well, thank you all so much. That has been absolutely brilliant. I really appreciate your insights and your thoughts as always. And I hope if you found this a useful podcast, um, please do share it with people. It makes all the difference. Please do tell people about it. And obviously, uh, please do uh, refer to the speakers. <laughs> it's one of the things. If you found, you know, make sure you don't just copy and paste or, or you know, go, oh, I've just had this brilliant idea. Um, no, but if you do find it useful, uh, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks for tuning in. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But thank you for tuning in. 
Now remember, for all the latest legal developments and analysis and commentary of sports law issues around the world, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on SoundCloud, Twitter, iTunes, Instagram, all the platforms you can imagine. And importantly, if you like what we do, if you're a fan of the show, if you're a fan of Law and Sport, if you like the community that we're trying to build and the work that we do, please do tell people about it. Please do share it. If you get knowledge from this that is useful to you in your work, please do tell people. Word of mouth matters to us. We don't do any pay for advertising. We literally rely on our reputation. And hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> but joking aside, if you like what we do, we appreciate your support. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please do share it with people. And other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is in the world, I hope you're having a wonderful day, wonderful evening. And thanks again for your support and for tuning in.